Thank you, Curtis. Thank you all of, all of you for joining us today in person and online. Thanks for giving us your time if you're online. And uh, I want to begin today with a statement that uh, I want to, you to think about whether you agree with it or not. And it goes like this. So let's have the first statement up there. It says, dividing from people I disagree with is good. It is safer for me and for my family. What do you think? How do you respond to people that you disagree with? Think about politics and say that you find out that an acquaintance of yours supports a political party that is the exact opposite of the one that you support. How do you feel about them? Say they really like a politician that you can't stand or they don't like a politician that you do like. Think about vaccines, masks, and lockdowns. As we've been through that over the past two years, many of us discovered people who had different views than we did. So how did we respond to them? How did we navigate all of that? Did we even talk about it? Or might we have cut off or blocked those with different views? Think about the Bible theology, church, and Christianity. And you find out that that person that is your friend or acquaintance holds a different view than you do on creation or end times or women in leadership in the church or worship preferences or some program that the church runs. Or maybe you find out that a person that is your friend dislikes a preacher or an author that you like or someone quotes a preacher or author that you don't like, how do you respond to such a dis disagreement? Think about parenting or education, how we educate our kids. You find out those people down there, they parent in a very different way than I parent. Or they educate their children in some way that uh, I would never. How do you navigate that? Let's go back to our statement. Dividing from people I disagree with is good. Is it okay to divide from others that we disagree with? Sometimes. In the case of a fundamental faith difference, we are cautioned against joining intimately together with those who hold different beliefs. Like 2 Corinthians 6.14, which says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship does light have with darkness and to be yoked together means to be in a relationship where an unbeliever's worldview or conduct can deeply impact and affect the believer so we sometimes must step back from situations where we're tempted to compromise our love for Christ and we do gather around a common statement of beliefs as a church and this by its nature will separate us from those who may not agree with our statement of beliefs. So it's okay for some division or separation when it comes to deep faith issues, and it's also necessary to step back from others when relationships are toxic or abusive, and some of you have been through relationships like that, and you have come out of such situations and you needed to set a boundary. But it's not okay to separate from a brother or sister in Christ over differences in opinion over vaccines. 
or politics or views on creation or end times or different approaches to parenting or education. These are secondary issues to the primary reasons that we come together. But it seems to me that much of the division in this world has come into the church over the past two and plus years. Now, what about the second part of our opening statement? It is safer for me and my family to separate from those that I disagree with. Certainly, if it is a toxic or abusive situation, it is safer. But if our natural response to any disagreement is to divide, to block, to separate for safety reasons, we might actually be exposing ourselves to more danger. Think about families or communities that live mostly separate lives from everyone else, which can create an environment where the louder personalities begin to dominate the others. Any disagreement or questions are squashed or dismissed or punished. And Christians and churches and parachurch organizations can go way off track because they have no accountability, no one else speaking into and bringing alternative viewpoints. No one challenging the dominating person. And separating ourselves from other believers also goes against God's design for us. He created us to need relationship with him and one another. Remember what he said about Adam. It is not good for man to be alone. We need one another to grow. In fact, through interaction with the whole community of God's people, God changes us for our good. So a belief that dividing from others is safer might actually lead us to more danger and vulnerability to deceit by the enemy. Human division, though, seems like such a massive issue that it is beyond our ability to solve. Yet today, we are going to see an incredible promise from the Lord about his peacemaking work. And then we are going to see how he fulfills it. And finally, we will look at how we can connect with God's peacemaking work in our lives, our church, and our community. And I pray that today will bring you some hope that we can engage in healthy, loving relationships, even with people that we disagree with, who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. So please find Ezekiel 37 in your Bibles, and we're looking at the passage following the Dry Bones Valley passage that we looked at last week. If you don't have a Bible and you're here with us today, it's on page 617 in the Bibles in front of you in the bottom right column. And we're starting at verse 15 of Ezekiel 37. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. So this is Ezekiel speaking again. And he says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick and write on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, 
Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them forever, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel again, and the Lord instructs him to perform another sign act. Ezekiel must gather up two sticks, and they were probably much larger than these sticks because the Lord instructs him to carve words on the sticks. On one he writes, for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. On the other, he is to write for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and the people associated with him. Then he must take the two sticks, hold the ends together in one hand, and make it look like the two sticks were one stick. And then people would see the unified stick, and they would see the writing on either end of the stick. And then they would ask him, can you tell us what this all means? And then the Lord instructs Ezekiel how to explain all this in verse 19. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. So in the sign act, Ezekiel is taking the role, or role playing God, and God's the one holding the two sticks, which represent these two nations. And God promises to bring them back together. But we don't get this, because we don't understand a little bit about maybe the history or what's really going on here. So let's think for a moment about some divided nations in our world today. Think about North 
and South Korea. So they divided sometime in the late 1940s. And then the Korean War happened in 1953. And then there was a ceasefire, but there has never been an official peace. So they are technically still at war. And there are hundreds of thousands of troops on both sides of the Korean border ready to fight should the ceasefire be broken. Now think about the hostility and differences between North and South Korea that have accumulated over the past 80 years. And then imagine God coming along and saying, I'm going to make these two nations one. How's that going to happen? After all this hostility, after all of these problems. Think about the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. They've been apart for about a hundred years now. And think about all the hostility and the troubles there have been between those two nations. And then God comes along and says, I'm going to make the two nations one. How's that going to happen? With all of the trouble and hostility between the people. Well, the Israelites started out as a united federation of 12 tribes. They came together to form this kingdom, and they remained as a united kingdom under only three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, tried to rule with an iron fist. And the 10 northern tribes would have none of it, so they separated from the southern tribes. And the most dominant tribe, population-wise, was the tribe of Ephraim, who was the son of Joseph, back in the Joseph story in Genesis 37 to 50. So the northern kingdom came to be called Israel or Ephraim. The southern kingdom was dominated by the tribe of Judah, and so it came to be known as Judah. So you have Israel or Ephraim, and you have Judah in the south. And when these two kingdoms separated, there was a civil war. And eventually they settled that, but they had multiple wars between them. And then in the year 722, so this all happened about the year 900. In 722, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, who were the superpower at that time. They came in, they destroyed the capital city, and they carried off thousands and thousands of Israelites to the Assyrian Empire. They also intermarried with the remaining Jews or Israelites so that the people in the southern kingdom wanted nothing to do with the people in the northern kingdom because they were now polluted or defiled because they had intermarried. And the northern kingdom ceased to exist as a political entity. Now that happened 140 years before the time of Ezekiel. So the northern kingdom has not existed for 140 years. And then we've all followed this story where the southern kingdom gets invaded by the Babylonians and destroyed, and that's why the people are in exile. In total, the two kingdoms were separated for 400 years. So remember Korea, 80 years. The two Irelands, 100 years. The two Israelite kingdoms, 400 years of separation and hostility. How on earth is God going to bring these two nations together? Yet here, the Lord claims he will make the two kingdoms one. And if we look at verse 22 again, notice the emphasis on one. The Lord says, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one 
king shall rule over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, but one. And they no longer divided into two kingdoms. So there is this huge push on the Lord's part to bring these two people groups together. And God promises the restoration and return, not only of the exiles who are living in Babylon, but of Israelites from all over the ancient Near East. And notice as well that this does not simply involve a change in location. It involves a change of heart. So verse 23, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I shall be their God. So the Lord's going to bring them back together physically and he's going to change their hearts so that they will want to follow him. But that's not all. Verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. Notice again the emphasis on unification and oneness. David being king, the only problem is David is dead. He's been dead for almost 400 years. So who's this David that's going to rule over these united, this united kingdom? And then notice again the spiritual and ethical character of the people in verse 24. They shall walk in my rules. They shall be careful to obey my statutes. And in verse 25, the land is promised. I will dwell, they will give them the land I gave to my servant Jacob. And Jacob was the father of the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. God changed the name of Jacob to Israel. And then in the middle of verse 25, we get a sense of the eternal nature of this kingdom. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David my, shall be their prince forever. So this is not just some temporary reunification for a few years. This is going to be an eternal kingdom. Yet there's more in verse 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant. And think about how that sounds to the exiles in Babylon who are there because they broke covenant with the Lord and their forefathers broke covenant by worshiping idols and now God's saying I'll make it a covenant of peace with you everlasting and then verse 26 and 27 and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It kind of sounds like, like sanctuary. What is that? Temple. Except, remember what we've seen of the temple in Ezekiel? Ezekiel 8 to 10. Remember that temple vision where the messenger brought Ezekiel and showed him all the idolatries that the people were doing inside the temple and around the temple complex. And then the glory of the Lord, the, the glorious chariot throne of the Lord, departs from the temple, goes to the east of the city and we know that in 586 and back in Ezekiel 33 586 BC the temple was destroyed completely destroyed so so what's going on here this seems like not a physical sanctuary but the presence of the Lord somehow dwelling tangibly with the people and then lastly the vision closes with this claim that the nations will know that the Lord sanctifies Israel because his sanctuary, his presence will be with them forever. So this is an incredible vision 
It requires the miraculous intervention of the Lord. No human could accomplish this. These are two peoples divided by 400 years of hostility, scattered to multiple nations with no human king to rally them. And the Lord will not only bring them together physically, he will change them spiritually, so they will desire to walk according to his ways. He will appoint a David figure to rule over them forever. He makes an everlasting covenant of peace with them, and he will dwell in their midst. So this is something people cannot do. God's the only one who can do this. God can bring such a divided people together by his power. It's what God does. And he's just given the vision of dry bones coming to life by his spirit, by the breath of his life, and now he promises a unified people from all parts of the world with renewed hearts. And so, if I could summarize this passage for you in one statement, I would do it like this. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit, you guys on media, to the part where the next slide comes up. This is the main point of this passage. It says, the Lord brings divided people together under his son's rule into a covenant of everlasting peace. That's what Ezekiel 37, the second half, is all about. He's bringing divided people together under his son's rule. So I'm giving away a little bit who David is. Into a covenant of everlasting peace. And what happened? Well... Some Jews did return and rebuild the temple, rebuilt the walls. We see that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But after almost 600 years, God sent his son, Jesus, who came from the line of David. And then listen to a reflection about this from a guy named Paul in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. And this letter was written to Israelites and non-Israelites. So this is about Jesus. And Paul writes, Therefore, to the Gentiles, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in that little section, 
The Apostle Paul is saying, not only did Jesus' death bring two nations together of Israelites, the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, it brought two hostile people groups together, the Israelites and the non-Israelites. And, and that is what God is doing. He's creating a new people made up of all the tribes of the earth together and bringing them into this thing called the church of whom you and I, of which you and I are part of. And we're invited to join this church, which is the people of God being built together into the dwelling place of God. And so the application for our lives goes like this. If the Lord can bring peace between entire nations of people, and people groups by the blood of his son, he can certainly empower us to live in peace with one another under Christ. And this is the key to staying in relationship with fellow Christians we disagree with. We must come under Christ, recognize our union, our oneness under Christ, and then we depend on him and his peacemaking power to enable us to engage in healthy relationships, even when there's disagreements. So how would we access that? Well, a few simple steps that, that we can take. Number one, receive the original peace God purchased for you through Christ. And if you have not received this, if you're not a Christian, you, you need to know Jesus purchased peace between God and us. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Jesus' blood purchased peace for us between us and God. And by our sin and walking away from God, we were at war with God. But by his blood, that is reconciled and paid for and we become at peace with God and enter into his family and he adopts us. And so if that has never happened in your life, you've never come to Christ in this way. You, you need to start there. To, to give your life, to stop trusting in yourself and put the trust of your life onto Christ. And maybe you look at your life and all the broken relationships and you realize, I, I, need, I need you, God. I need you as we have sung. And, and so it starts by admitting this. Oh, we need, I need you. And I, I, I have made a mess of things. I'm a sinner. But the blood of Christ brings me near to you. And so that's step number one. Uh, secondly, then, we need to practice resting in the peace of God's presence and provision. And this is, of course, for all of us. Not only dealing with broken relationships, but dealing with life. So there's just a, a little practice that you might follow. Calm your heart and soul before the Lord. we got to stop and pull out of life and the busyness of life. And then as we practiced last week, state, give, state in one word how your soul is doing to the Lord. We talked about that and practiced that last week. Remember, angry, despairing, whatever state you are in, acknowledge that before the Lord. And then third, ponder the greatness of God who promises and delivers an everlasting covenant of peace. And, and he's, he's done this between nations and between people groups. He can do it in our lives. And, and, a, and a great couple of verses to focus on are Isaiah 26, 3 and 4 there. For you, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So when our minds are stayed on Christ rather than whatever situation we're dealing with, the peace 
can begin to flow, a peace of God flows into us, then keep it focused more on the Lord and his power and the peace he brings. Let him speak to you, minister to you, calm you, and then return to life with a renewed perspective. So first we receive the peace Christ purchased. Then we practice resting in the peace of God. Third, repent of any peace breaking that you have been part of and I have been part of. And reconcile. Romans 14, 19 says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And if there's someone in your life, maybe a fellow Christian that you haven't really engaged with for quite a while because you have a difference of opinion, repent of that and, and do your part in trying to make it right. Which is governed by number four, live peaceably with all. Romans 12, 18 is a, is a phenomenal verse for this. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What, what a realistic verse, right? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Or Romans 14, 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Or 2 Corinthians 13, 11, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And we can taste a little bit of God's incredible peacemaking work in us and among us. So we started today by pondering the statement, dividing from people I disagree with is good. It is safer for me and my family. We need to challenge that statement and perhaps approach it like this. Discovering, maybe a different statement, discovering disagreement with others can be hard. Yes, it's hard. But by the power of Christ the peacemaker, it is possible to remain respectful and loving as we go forward. Lord Jesus, as we come to you at this time, first of all, we praise you and thank you that you purchased peace for us with God through your blood. And then we recognize our own peace-breaking where we have just stopped talking to people or written them off or avoided them because of a difference of opinion in one area. And if we've done that, Lord, will you forgive us? And give us courage, Lord. Courage to step out, just as you did stepping into the world to purchase peace for us with your blood. Give us that courage to step out and make the first move to reconcile, to restore, to be one again under you. Help us, Lord. It's tough, but by your power and strength, it's possible. We give you glory and pray this in your name. Amen. And our closing song today...